Ava is uh, in her first year of dance. And a few months ago, I got to take her because Leslie was unable, and it was a lot of fun to see what they uh, do each and every week. And uh, the week I went, they were working on a number that they're doing for their spring recital. And it's a, it's a very cute routine that they perform to the song, Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys. And they are a bunch of little monkeys, those girls in there. Now, I know many of you remember the song, right? Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Raise your hand. Monkey fans in here? Wow. Any of y'all have any monkey albums at home? Anybody? All right. All right. Well, the, the, the monkeys were a bit before my time, but I do know of that song, and I do know of, of several others that, that, they, that they performed, and I also remember watching the old silly reruns of the show on TV when I was little. Well, the other morning, I was getting ready, and I just had that song, Hey, Hey, We're the Monkeys, stuck in my head. Probably because I've, I've heard it played hundreds of times in the past couple of months, as Ava's been working on learning that routine. But that song was just in my head, and I was just mumbling it almost unconsciously. You ever do that? And I was, I was, I was, I was mumbling this song, and just kind of singing it to myself. And I came to a line in the song that I had heard before, but it really stuck out to me for the first time. And it's the line where they say, we're the young generation and we've got something to say. And I stopped for a moment and thought about that line. And I thought to myself, really? The monkeys? They have something to say? They have a a message for their generation. You know, I just remember them being a bunch of goofy guys. I mean, their name's the monkeys, for crying out loud. Yet they're saying, we have got something to say. We've got a message. We have something significant, something important that we're trying to communicate. So with that in mind, I began to look at some of their other songs to see what this message is. What is the message of the monkeys? What are they trying to say? And here's what I found. In their song, We're the Monkeys, they make it clear that people say they monkey around, but they're too busy singing to put anybody down. They also had a popular song about not missing a train to Clarksville, a song about a love story between a daydream believer and a homecoming queen, And there is a song entitled, I'm a Believer, but uh, it's just a song about becoming a believer in love at first sight and things that happen in fairy tales. And that's about it. Just songs about love and breakups and being nice to people and playing music and enjoying life and monkeying around, and that's about it. That's pretty much the message of the monkeys. Now, not saying that it's a bad thing to be nice to people, And it's not a bad thing to settle down with someone you love and enjoy life. But be honest, is that really a unique message that's going to impact a generation? Is that the kind of message that we only learn for the monkeys? No. I'm not trying to bash these guys this morning. I know I'm going to get some hate mail from some fans in here. But I'm just making the point that there are a lot of people out there who believe that they have something significant to say, 
something to bring to the table, and their message often ends up being as common and as insignificant as the message of the monkeys. But that's not to be true of us believers. We do have something to say. We have a message, a unique message, a message that has transformed cultures for the good, a message that has bettered our world as a whole, a message that has transformed wicked and wayward individuals. We have a life-saving, life-changing message. And we're going to learn about what this message is this morning in John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 3. We are continuing our sermon series this morning through the book of John entitled Knowing Jesus from John. And this morning we're going to talk about knowing Jesus as Savior. And what we're going to find in the text we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus has something to say. He has a message, and, and not just any message, but the most important message that the world has ever known, a unique and wonderful, life-changing message. In this passage we're going to study this morning, we are going to peek into a private conversation that takes place between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus is going to share with Nicodemus this life-changing message. He is going to explain to him what one must do to be saved. First, he tells Nicodemus, to be saved, one must realize the spiritual problem. In any 12-step program for alcohol or, or drug addicts, the first step is realizing and admitting you have a problem. And the same is true with salvation. Before a person can be saved, he or she must first realize they have a spiritual problem. They must realize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, here's the issue. Just like someone who struggles with addiction, many sinners are in denial, thinking that they don't need saving. Many think, I'm not that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there or, or that girl over here. Surely, when God talks about condemnation in His Word, He doesn't mean me. Or others think, well, I know, I know I'm not perfect, you know, but who is? They think, surely I'm good enough. Surely I'll make the cut. Surely God will overlook some of my shortcomings, and surely he'll, he'll overlook some of the minor hang-ups that I have. Maybe this is the mentality of some of you in here this morning. Let me point out the fact that it's significant in our passage today that this dialogue about salvation takes place with a guy like Nicodemus. John, mentioning this encounter, is trying to tell us something very significant about salvation. He is showing here that if a guy like Nicodemus needs saving, we all need it. If he is not exempt, no one is. If he is not an exception, then there are none. That's John's point. He's showing us here in this story that if Nicodemus needs to be saved, we all do. And for you to really understand this point, I need to share with you a bit more about Nicodemus. First, notice that Nicodemus was an impressive 
man. You know, many pastors, they spend time focusing on the accolades of the Apostle Paul from Scripture and how impressive he was in the Jewish community because of his education and his influence. Listen, Nicodemus is in the ballpark here, folks. He is. He was devout. Look at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was devout. He was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were an elite religious group. Their name literally meant separate ones because they were set apart from others in that day and because of their knowledge of the scriptures and their devotion to God. And Nicodemus was in this group. So he is is serious about his beliefs and he's pious in practice. Notice also he was a leader. Look at the end of verse 1. He was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was not only in an elite religious group, but he held a position of authority within that group. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And while there were thousands of Pharisees, there were only 71 members of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member was considered to be one of the greatest honors in the land. So Nicodemus is the real deal, folks. He's no joke. He was a devout powerful, well-educated, well-versed Jew with a ton of respect in the Jewish community. He was an impressive individual. But as educated as he was, as powerful as he was, as devout as he was, as respected as he was, as impressive as he was, he was also respectful. We learn in John 3 that he was a respectful man. Look at verse 2. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, I can't know this for sure, but my guess is if there was a likable Pharisee in the bunch, it would have been Nicodemus. As impressive as he was, he was also respectful. He knew Jesus had no formal education and no titles by his name, yet he shows Jesus respect. Now, did he think too highly of himself? Sure. Did he think he had things all figured out? Probably, to an extent. But Nicodemus was a bit different than his counterparts here. I'm sure you had some, and we know know they did back in this day because we have the gospel accounts of it, but there were some in Nicodemus' position, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin that were prideful and intolerant and maybe even devious and corrupt. People who, who, uh, you know, were were probably not as well liked. There were probably people in the community that that looked at them a bit different. I, I, I think they might have favored Nicodemus just a little bit. Not only was he impressive and respected, but he was respectful and he comes to Jesus at night. Now, many people make a big deal about this. They try to say, well, this shows Nicodemus was prideful. He didn't want to be seen by anybody with Jesus, but I don't think that's the case at all. I think the reason why Nicodemus went at night was probably because he and Jesus were so busy during the day. It was Passover, which would have been a busy time for any Pharisee, especially a member of the Sanhedrin, and Jesus was busy as well all the time, traveling around, surrounded by people all throughout the day. 
So this might have been the only time these two could have a private conversation. I also believe Nicodemus might have been sent by the other members of the Sanhedrin because when he comes in, he says, notice verse 2, says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. Nicodemus was probably so impressive that they're like, we're going to send him. See how Jesus handles him. And Nicodemus goes in as the spokesperson here. And he goes at night and he shows Jesus respect. He says, Rabbi. Now, the term Rabbi is a Hebrew title that means great one. It's a, a, a term used to describe a teacher of a high office. And again, Nicodemus, he, he shows he's a respectful guy because Jesus didn't have the accolades, he didn't have the titles and the respect that Nicodemus had at this time. Yet Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he says, great one, and he says this, we know that you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these th signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus acknowledges that Jesus is a teacher from God because of the great signs that he was obviously doing in and around Jerusalem. He knows Jesus is special, and he shows respect for him. And notice something else here. Nicodemus doesn't come with a long list of questions, does he? That's how the religious leaders normally approach Jesus. He didn't. He came respectfully with his hat in his hand, I believe, and lets Jesus set the agenda. The Pharisees often tried to show off their own authority by calling Jesus into question. And, and they tried to show that they were learned men trying to stump Jesus. They often addressed him publicly, trying to discredit him before others, but not Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes at night in private. He doesn't make any accusations about Jesus, though I'm sure some wanted to after Jesus' stunt in the temple we talked about last week driving out the money changers and turning over the table. I'm sure some people wanted to give Jesus a piece of their mind, but Nicodemus doesn't. And he doesn't try and set the topic of conversation. He shows Jesus respect and then he listens to what Jesus has to say. So on top of being impressive and, and respected, Nicodemus was also respectful. And again, I don't know this for sure, but knowing what we know, about Nicodemus before salvation. I'm sure there were some in that day who looked at Nicodemus and looked at his impressive religious resume and looked at the fact that he, he was also somewhat kind and respectful and thought, man, it, there is no one closer to God than Nicodemus. I mean, if anyone's in, it's him. Yet notice in verse 3, we learn... That Nicodemus, on top of being an educated man and an impressive man and a powerful man and a respected man and a respectful man, he was a lost man. Nicodemus was a lost man. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in the previous point, remember I said that Nicodemus did not come to Jesus with a list of questions, but notice it says here that Jesus answers Nicodemus by saying that one must be born again to save the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus, I believe he shows here that he's divine by giving Nicodemus what he needs before he asks it or before he even knows he needs it. That's a divine characteristic, isn't it? God often treats us in that way, giving us things before we need them and before we ask for them and before we even know we need them. And he does that here with Nicodemus. 
He looks beyond Nicodemus's impressive religious resume, beyond his flattery, and he looks into the heart of the man and he sees that Nicodemus needs salvation. He needs to be changed completely from the inside out. Jesus saw all of Nicodemus's titles, all of his accomplishments, all of his acts of devotion, and he even saw his qualities of genuineness and respectfulness for what it truly was, nothing, absolutely nothing. He tells Nicodemus here, if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want a relationship with the one true God and want him to rule and reign in your life and spend eternity with him, you have to scrap all of what you've been doing up until now. You have to be born again. Now the word translated born again here is better translated born a second time from above. Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth here that, that is needed. And, and again, this is significant that Jesus says this to Nicodemus because there are few in those days who would have questioned whether or not Nicodemus was good with God. There was no one more devoted, no one more pious than him. Yet Jesus says, Nicodemus, you're a million miles off the mark. For you to be right with God, you have to completely scrap all of what you've been doing up until now, and you must be born again. We learn an important truth here. Folks, we learn there's no amount of work that we can do, no amount of religious accomplishments that we can have, no amount of quality characteristics that we can possess that will make us right with God. No matter how much effort we put in, no matter, no matter how many things we give up, no matter how reverent and humble we are, that doesn't move us one step closer to God. We all, every one of us, with that exception, we have a spiritual problem. We come into this world fallen. We enter into this life broken, and there's not a thing that we can do to fix it on our own. So when answering the question, what must one do to be saved first, we must understand the spiritual problem. And second, we must look to God for the solution. Though Nicodemus is floored by this news, he's in the right place, isn't he? And speaking to the right person for the answers that he needs. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's being serious. Verses 1 through 3, we learn that this impressive yet respectful Pharisee named Nicodemus has come to Jesus to have this, this private conversation with him, probably hoping for a pat on the back, an attaboy. He's probably hoping that, that Jesus will assure him that he's on the right track and headed in the right direction, but instead, Jesus lets him know that he's not even close, that he's in need of salvation. He lets Nicodemus know that for him or for anyone else to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. Now, Nicodemus is completely confused by, by Jesus' response here. He's thinking, born again? How can that happen, you know? All this time, Nicodemus thought that he had things figured out. And Jesus comes along and tells him something he knows nothing about. 
But notice that Nicodemus doesn't cut out on Jesus here. He doesn't say, this guy's speaking nonsense, I'm out. No. He continues to seek answers from Jesus about salvation. And Jesus answers him by giving him one of the most important truths in the entire Bible. He tells Nicodemus that salvation is solely a work of God. He tells him that it is God who saves and only God who saves. And and one way he saves is through his spirit. God saves through the work of his spirit. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now let's stop here for a moment. This is a very important verse that has been explained in all sorts of ways. One of the most common ways is is people think that Jesus is referring to to two births here in verse 5. They think he's talking about a physical birth and a spiritual birth, which you can understand the logic there, right? Many believe that the mention of water here refers to the release of of fluid that accompanies a physical birth, and and then the second birth here, the birth of the Spirit, refers to a spiritual birth. But many credible commentaries explain this away, and the reason why is because when you look into the original language John is is using here, and, and when he mentions water and Spirit, he's referring to a single event. He's not talking about two separate births. He's talking about a single event, a single spiritual birth. So he's not talking about two separate births, but a single spiritual birth. You know, oftentimes we let our context interpret the text for us instead of trying to understand what the writing would have meant to the original hearer. And in this day... When water was used in scripture, it was often referred to, it was often used in reference to cleansing. To the Jews, water meant cleansing. So in Nicodemus's mind, when Jesus mentions being born of water and the Spirit, his mind probably would have gone back to Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 26. Look at it up on the screen with me. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 26. Listen to this. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So Jesus in verse 5 answers Nicodemus's question here by referring to this cleansing. He's saying, except a man be, be cleansed from the inside out, except a man be purified, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Notice, Jesus gives credit to the Holy Spirit here. In verse 5, he informs informs Nicodemus that for one to be born again, they must be cleansed from the inside out. And here, in verse 6, he lets Nicodemus know that this cleansing, this renewal, this transformation is an inside job done by the Holy Spirit. He says, oh, and by the way, Nicodemus... This cleansing that I'm talking to you about, it must take place from within 
by the Spirit. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And what that means is, folks, we can't recreate ourselves. If you've just experienced a physical birth and that's it, you're stuck with what you got. You can't transform yourself from the inside out. If you've only experienced a physical birth, then you're dead spiritually, period. That's biblical. No matter the works of devotions you perform, no matter how prestigious the the titles you have, without the Spirit's work within you, those are all for naught. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Only that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You with me? Jesus says only the Spirit can get in and recreate you. Just like a leopard can't get rid of its spots, we can't get rid of our sin, Nicodemus, but the Spirit can take care of that. This transformation, this cleansing is an inside job done by the Spirit of God. And boy, this is a hard truth for Nicodemus. This is a tough pill for him to swallow. And and that's the way it was with the Pharisees. They were always thinking external and literal. And Jesus is talking figuratively and spiritually, and he's dealing with the the internal. And and and, and Nicodemus is just, he's puzzled. And Jesus knows that. Which is why he says, Do not marvel that I said this to you, verse 7. You must be born again. Jesus responds in this way because Nicodemus is floored by this news. I mean, his world has been shattered. All of these years he's been working tirelessly to move up the religious ladder, to get closer and closer to God, and Jesus, in a matter of moments, completely shatters that. Nicodemus has been abiding by the rules He's been obeying the laws of Judaism, observing the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the feasts, hoping to hear from Jesus. You're getting real close. And Jesus says, you're a world away, Nicodemus. For you to see the kingdom of God, you have to scrap all of that. You have to realize that none of those works that you've been doing day in and day out have moved you one step closer to God. Only God can move you closer to God. And he does it by changing you from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. But Nicodemus in verse 7, he's still confused by all this, thinking, surely I play some sort of role in my salvation. Surely salvation is something external, something I can see, something tangible, something external, something I can work for to achieve. It's got to be. And Jesus says, let me illustrate it for you. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus gives an illustration here to Nicodemus of the wind. And he says, consider the wind. You can't see the wind, can you? Can any of you guys see the wind? No. He says, you can't tell me where it comes from or where it goes, yet you know it's there and you see the results. You see the trees bend. You feel it against your body, but you don't see the wind. Jesus says that's the way the Spirit works in salvation. Though you don't see the Spirit, He's at work, and you definitely see the results. You know, you can take someone at the point of salvation, and you can put them under an x-ray machine, and you won't see the Spirit at work. You won't. You won't see the new birth. 
It's an inward, invisible work. But you don't have to see it to believe it, and you definitely see the results. Am I right? That's Jesus' point. Well, poor Nicodemus is having a tough time with this truth. Look at verse 9. He says, how can these things be? Jesus knows he's dealing with a thick-headed Pharisee. So he gets a little more forceful with his response. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He says, aren't you a Pharisee? Aren't you a a member of, of the elite group, the Sanhedrin, and you did not know that salvation was an inside job? You didn't know that salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit? What are they teaching you over there in seminary? Well, Jesus, knowing that Nicodemus is still not getting it, knowing he's not where he needs to be, he explains to him a bit more. He not only tells him that this is a work of God through the Holy Spirit, but he also informs Nicodemus that God saves through the person and work of his son. In the following verses, Jesus opens up to to Nicodemus a bit further by telling him his reason for coming to earth. But before he does, notice he addresses Nicodemus' unbelief. Let's go back to, to John 3, verse 9 again. When Nicodemus says, how can these things be? He's indicating to Jesus that he has some doubts. So Jesus, beginning in verse 11, addresses Nicodemus' unbelief. And he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Notice that Jesus is speaking in the plural here. Now, some people try to over-spiritualize this and say Jesus is referring to himself as Trinity here, but it really doesn't fit contextually. Now, what Jesus is doing when he speaks in the plural is he's referring to himself and his followers. And I believe this is a response to Nicodemus' comments in verse 2. Remember, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at first and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God. What Jesus responds with in verse 11, he responds to Nicodemus saying, well, Nicodemus, I've heard what you and your guys think. Now let me tell you what we know. Me and my guys, my disciples, my followers. We know what we're talking about when we speak about the things of God. We know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you, and the you here is plural, you and your guys have responded with unbelief. You and your guys have not received our testimony. Now, what was Nicodemus' problem? Why didn't he believe? I believe it's because he didn't want to believe. All this time... Nicodemus thought he held all the cards. He thought salvation was a work of Nicodemus. And here Jesus is coming in and telling him to scrap all that and start from scratch. See, Nicodemus liked to think that he was in the driver's seat, that he was the one in control, that he has all the answers. But Jesus lets him know here in verse 12 that he doesn't. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus really 
puts Nicodemus in his place here. He basically says, Nicodemus, you may be thought of as a gifted teacher from your community and and as a, a teacher of God and as an expert on heavenly things, but you don't even have a grasp on earthly things. He said, what I've shared with you is a simple, basic truth that takes place here on planet Earth. That you have to be born again. You must be transformed by God from the inside out, and you can't even grasp that. You question that. What I've shared with you is a work that God does on Earth. A miraculous work that takes place here. He says, if you can't accept that, how are you going to understand the deeper things of God, Nicodemus? Jesus is humbling Nicodemus even further by telling him, though he has a lot of precious and and, and impressive titles, and though he is viewed by many as an expert of God, Jesus lets him know he's really in the minor leagues when it comes to the deeper things of God. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I love this verse. Isn't this a great response to the religious in our world? There are many religious people today trying to ascend to heaven, trying to reach God through religious devotion and personal efforts. And Jesus comes along and he says, no one's ever done that. No one. You don't reach God through human effort and personal devotion. Again, the way, the only way that you can, you can get to God is if God reaches down to you. And, and Jesus tells him in verses 13 through 15, that's exactly what God has done. God has come down to earth. He has taken on flesh. He has moved into the neighborhood. He has condescended down in the person of Jesus to reveal the deeper truths about the Father and the Spirit and His kingdom. And He has also come to accomplish salvation for His people. Look at verse 14. Jesus gives us another great illustration here explaining the work that the Father sent Him to accomplish. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He says, for this new birth to occur, the Son of Man must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, Jesus is making an Old Testament reference here, isn't he? In Numbers 21, remember Moses is with the children of Israel, and they're complaining, constantly complaining. Finally, God says, enough is enough, and he, and he punishes them by sending a plague. He sends deadly snakes into the camp, and these snakes strike the Israelites. So God punishes them for their sinfulness, but he doesn't leave them in this desperate state. He gives them a second chance to be his people, a second chance at redemption. He tells Moses, he says, make a serpent, place it on a pole, set it in the center of camp, and he says, anybody who looks to the serpent will be healed instantly. So Moses does that, they look to it, and they are healed. Jesus says here to Nicodemus, he says, it's the same way with me. Men today have been infected by sin, and they're in a bad way. They're in desperate need of being restored, and I, like Moses, have come to bring the solution. But I'm not lifting up a bronze serpent. 
He says, I myself am going to be lifted up. He's referring to his death. He says, when I am lifted up, when I give my life, I'm giving it in your place, on your behalf, so that, verse 15, whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Folks, that's what Christ has done for us. He has offered up his own life as payment, as substitute for ours. And he has done it so that we would see the consequences of our own sin and so that we would turn from that and trust in him and in him alone for salvation. Folks, that's what Nicodemus needed. That's what he needed. Not more trips to the temple, not more acts of service, not more laws to abide by, not more prayers to recite, or more acts of devotion to perform. Nicodemus needed the saving work of Christ. He needed to see that he was a condemned sinner in need of a Savior and that he needed Christ's work applied to his life. He needed to know Jesus as Savior. And that's what we need as well. Folks, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. You can work as hard as you want to make changes in your life. You can be involved in a dozen or more charities, a dozen or more ministries. You can devote your life to helping and serving others. You can give all your money away to various charities and it won't change a thing about you in the eyes of God. I know that's hard to hear, but it's true. You must be born again. You must be changed from the inside out. You must realize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and you must turn from that sin and trust in Christ who's been lifted up for you, who has died in your place. You must trust in Him and in Him alone for your salvation. You must reject your filthy rags of good deeds and look to and trust in the person and work of Christ. Only then can you be saved. Only then can you be made right with God. Let's pray.